If you're able, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. And we're going to continue where Lawson left off last week in chapter 3. As I was studying for this text, I was reminded of one of the most uh, probably infamous sports press conferences of all time. If you follow the NBA, you'll probably remember uh, the Philadelphia 76ers starting point guard, Allen Iverson's famous press conference several years ago concerning the charge that um, he didn't take practice seriously. And in response to this charge, Iverson went on this approximately 30-minute rant that was mostly filled with variations of of a phrase, practice? Practice. We're talking about practice. Not the game, but practice. Not the game that I love and, and give my life to, but we're talking about practice. Practice. Seriously, folks, we're talking about practice. And so on he went for about 30 minutes. <laughs> so in the spirit of the great Iverson, I can tell you that today we are indeed talking about practice. Not the same kind of practice that Alan was talking about or in the same way even. You see, Iverson was, was upset because he felt that people were putting too much emphasis on practice. And in our text today, John, in contrast, is emphatic that we cannot put too much emphasis on practice. So, if you're able, read along with me as I begin reading in 1 John chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 4 and continue through verse 10. And today I'm going to be reading in the ESV translation as I believe uh, it brings more clarity to this particular text. So follow along as I read. Verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. But this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Pray with me. Father, as we we continue in this season of angst and uncertainty, God, would would you calm our hearts? Would you focus our minds so that we might hear from you? God, as the psalmist says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. God, give us understanding. 
that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. So Father, speak to us today. We need to hear your voice. It's the holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I think it's safe to say that uh, this text has probably been the source of more confusion and anxiety than maybe any in Scripture. And I think in fairness, it's not hard to read this passage and come away thinking, I think I just read that if I sin, it means I'm not a Christian because apparently real Christians don't sin. And this could be compounded by the fact that that one of the big themes of this entire book is how you can be assured or know that you are a true follower of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 13, John summarizes the purpose of the whole book by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So many have become frightened by reading this text as this is how you know you have eternal life. You never sin anymore. Now, of course, if this was true, John would likely have been a confused old man suffering from dementia because it stands in stark contrast to what he says in in chapter one in verse eight where he says, if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or two verses later in verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I hope that everyone who is listening to me today is aware, painfully aware of the fact that you still sin. I suspect most of us probably already have a few under our belt this morning, right? So over the next few minutes, I want to explore this text by answering three big questions. Question one, what is this text actually communicating about our relationship with sin? Question two, why is John so emphatic that practicing sin is completely incompatible with being a follower of Christ? And question three, how do we actually live this out? So, let's get started. Question one, what is this text communicating about our relationship with sin? I think the key to to reading this text rightly is found in the word practice, as well as the words keep or keeps on. The word practice is found six times in this text, and keep on is written three times. You see, the idea of practice is something that you do repetitively and willfully. Growing up, I I took piano lessons. And part of learning to play the piano meant that I, I had to commit to spending 30 to 60 minutes a day practicing scales, arpeggios, dexterity exercises, and, and whatever music I was working on. I added trumpet to my studies in middle school, and by the time I became a music major in college, it was expected that now I would practice anywhere between three to five hours a day. 
So while my pre-med friends were holed up in a library studying biology, I was locked in a practice room practicing trumpet and piano. My practice was intentional. It was regular. It was daily. I did it because I enjoyed it, and I wanted to grow as a musician. And John's point in this passage is that when one becomes a Christian, a person who mimics Christ, you cannot and will not continue to willfully consistently and eagerly practice those things which rebel against the God who you now claim to follow rather than practicing those things that do. And that's what John had in mind when he penned these words. You see, much of 1 John is meant to rebuke and warn new believers against two prevalent false doctrines of the day. Gnosticism, and antinomianism. Gnosticism taught that what you do doesn't matter, only what you think or believe. True religion was about the mind, and the mind alone, it only mattered what you thought. Antinomianism was similar, except that it taught that what you do doesn't matter because it's all covered by grace. Jesus paid for every sin that anyone has or will commit, so sin all you want. That's what Paul is addressing in in Romans 6 when he says, should I sin all the more so that grace may abound? And of course, he, he answered his own question immediately by saying, absolutely not. John's message in this text is for his readers at the time not to give in to the false teaching of the Gnostics or the Antinomians. Sin in the life of a true follower should be decreasing in frequency, not increasing or even staying the same. John MacArthur said it like this. He said the Christian does not, cannot habitually and persistently sin. He will sin sometimes. He will sin willfully. But he will not sin habitually, persistently, or relentlessly. Now, we may not call it Gnosticism or antinomianism anymore, but the fact is that the same false doctrines of cheap grace are just as prominent today. Evangelical Christianity is filled with a teaching that salvation is based solely on a a momentary decision where you walk an aisle, pray a rote prayer, maybe even sign something. Yet your life never changes. In fact, it, it gives you freedom to pursue sinful habits even more vigorously because you now have your get out of hell insurance policy. So it doesn't matter. You know, I, I can't recount the number of times over the years that I've heard people justify their belief that a loved one was saved even though that they have lived sinfully with reckless abandon for years. And their confidence is based on the fact that they remember them saying as a prayer as a child, maybe even as an adult, or maybe based on the fact that they, they attended their baptism. But you see, what was true when John wrote this is still true today. Belief alone doesn't save you. 
Saying a prayer doesn't save you. Even getting baptized doesn't save you. All of those are important elements of of salvation. But God alone grants forgiveness of sins. And an unavoidable mark of a regenerated life is that you begin to run from the sins that you once pursued. You grieve the sins that you once boasted about. And you kill the sins that you once nurtured. That is why he can say that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And that takes us to our second question that I want to address. Why is John so emphatic that practicing sin is completely incompatible with being a follower of Christ? I think the common tendency when reading a text when reading this text, is the fix on the command not to sin. And in the process, you totally miss the why of the passage. And the why that makes this whole section work is found in verses 5 and in verse, in verse 8. Look at verse 5. You know that he appeared, why? In order to take away sins. And look at verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is the root of John's message. Without these two sentences, we will invariably fall into either the the license ditch of, of sinning all you want or the legalism ditch of trying to will it by ourselves. But these two statements, when read properly, should fill us with immense power and hope. I especially love the wording of verse 8 because I think it flies in the face of the thought that that Jesus came to earth to be this kind of gentle, nice-to-everyone guy who taught everyone and, and taught everyone to be nice also. And I would contend that probably a more accurate portrait of the incarnation of Jesus would look a lot more like a Navy SEAL who drops into enemy territory to rescue a people who had been kidnapped and in the process destroy the kidnapper and his army. Our text says that the devil has been practicing sin from the beginning. This, of course, is affirmed as we read the account of the fall of man in Genesis 3. But what we also read in Genesis 3 is what the theologians call the proto-evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel. And what was that proclamation? That one day the seed of the woman, a child from the lineage of Eve, would come and crush the head of the serpent. You see, when our, when our text says in verse 5 that he came to take away sin, it doesn't mean that he came to, to negotiate with Satan. He came to crush him to utterly destroy his work so that he could rescue us from the domain of darkness. That is what Jesus communicated in Luke 11 with his parable in response to the claim that Jesus was was casting out demons by the power of Satan. It it, It says in verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. 
But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What's Jesus' message? I am not one of Satan's minions. I am his superior. I don't work for him. I am here to attack him and destroy him, take away his armor, and walk away with the spoil. My people who I came to rescue and free. And James, we read that the demons don't just believe in Jesus, they shudder in his presence. We see this in Matthew 8 when Jesus encounters demons and their response is, what do you want with us, son of man? Did you come to torture us before it's time? <laughs> you know, I think that the, the magnificence of our Savior is that to us, his children, he can say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And yet that's at the same time, demons are absolutely cringing at his terrifying power of the, over them, knowing that at some point he will torture and destroy them. Even more incredible than that is the realization that the way that he destroyed the works of the devil was not by inflicting violence on him, at least not yet. He destroyed him by allowing violence to be inflicted on himself. He rendered Satan powerless, not by dismissing the wages of sin, which is death, but by paying the wage himself through the shame and the torture and the death on a Roman cross. The innocent one who knew no sin was condemned as guilty so that the guilty could be counted as righteousness. And then he stormed out of that grave three days later, rendering Satan's power over sin and death to be over. The sting of sin and the sting of death was gone. The serpent's head was crushed. So why does John say that the practice of unrepentant habitual sin is not possible in a true believer? Because God himself invaded earth and the flesh to free us from the power and the penalty of sin in our lives so that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer under his power. But you know, even more importantly, why would we possibly continue to make habitual practice of sin and lawlessness against the very God who loved us so extravagantly? That's why verse 6 says, no one who keeps sinning has either seen him or known him. Anyone who has come to know God and has experienced his life-changing work in their life cannot help but increasingly practice righteousness rather than sin. 
For as Philippians 2.13 said, it is God who is working in you. He is enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Hmm. But you know, if that were not enough, our text actually gives us another reason to the question of why the habitual practice of sin is impossible in the life of a true believer. The second why is found in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now this, of course, is in contrast to verse 8 that states, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's harsh. But in case there's any confusion about this, John states this even more clearly in the Gospel of John when he tells a group of Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Hmm. I'm sure that went over well, right? You know, and the real scary news is that unfortunately, this statement doesn't just apply to first century Pharisees. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, um, said to them, he was writing to believers, and he said, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, there is good news and bad news in this statement. The bad news is that all of us were born with Satan being our father. We all practice sin and lawlessness because we were all of the devil and are by nature children of wrath. But praise God, there is also really, really good news in Paul's statement. And the good news is found in that one little word, were. Were. Past tense. You were children of wrath. Meaning that, but now you are children of God. This is the incredible point of verse 9. God did not just leave heaven and invade earth to take away sin and destroy the work of Satan. He also, also forcibly stripped Satan of his parental rights over his elect children. When by grace, through faith, we turn away from sin and toward our Savior... God doesn't just forgive our sins and give us a new heart. He performs a spiritual DNA transplant so that Satan no longer is our father in any way. We don't have to mimic him. We don't have to live with him. God's name is the only one on our birth certificate now. And that is very, very good news. This is the amazing news that John starts the chapter with. See what love the Father has lavished on us. Why? That we should be called children of God. And the news even gets better in verse 2 when he says, and when he appears, we shall be like him. How? By practicing righteousness like our new father rather than the lawlessness of our old one. And I have to think John was very intentional in his use of the word seed in verse 9. I think he used it to make his point about our new relationship with sin. 
What we all know about seeds is that they start out really small, right? But over time, they grow into very large plants and trees. You see, when someone first comes to God and acknowledges their sins and submits their life to his authority, it's pretty common that their life is not completely revolutionized overnight. But what happens is they, is they begin to grow in their faith. What you see over time is that sinful patterns diminish as godly patterns grow. I think anyone who has a yard gets this, right? What's the best way to get rid of weeds in your yard? Feed and nurture the grass. And as the grass grows and flourishes and gets thicker, the weeds will naturally get choked out and die. This is the picture that John is painting here. The reason that the practice of sin is incompatible with a true Christian is because, as verse 5 tells us, in God there is no sin, and we are now his children. We look like him. We act like him. As we grow in him, our resemblance to him will continue to grow. So as this seed germinates in us and grows, slowly and surely, love will begin to choke out hate. Joy starts to replace despair. Peace slowly takes over anxiety. Patience crowds out impatience. Kindness gradually replaces malice. Goodness begins to live where revenge once did. Gentleness takes over harshness. Faithfulness undoes double-mindedness. And self-control begins to replace recklessness. Question three. So we've addressed the what question and the why question, which leaves us with the how. How does this actually play out in our lives? And I think the clearest answer to this is found in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So to rephrase this in the positive, we could ask, who are the children of God? The ones who practice righteousness and the one who loves his brother. And hear me, it is essential to understand that this is an and statement, not an or statement. Do you want to audit yourself to see if you are really a child of God? Ask yourself two questions. Is my hatred and repulsion for sin growing? And is my love and compassion for people also growing? When John wrote this, there were two false camps that both claimed to be God's children. The Pharisees at the time were all about right living. They were all about righteousness and following rules. Yet Jesus condemned them. Why? Because they didn't love people. 
In contrast, the Gnostics were, they were kind of like the hippies of today. They were sweet and loved everybody, but they didn't hate sin and they didn't pursue righteousness. And John is painfully clear throughout this book that you cannot claim to love God and yet not grow in your love for people. And likewise, you cannot claim to love God and not increasingly hate sin and strive to kill it. And here's the painful truth of today. Do you know why I think as, as Christian evangelicals that we are losing or maybe have lost the culture? I think it's at least partially due to the fact that we as evangelicals are perceived to be a bunch of snooty do-gooders who don't do very well at loving people. Liberal Christianity is probably more attractive because it doesn't condemn sin, but even more importantly, because they are perceived to be much more loving of people. So if people have to pick one, the latter is far more attractive. John is telling us that authentic faith must have both. Holiness without love is not really holiness. And love without holiness isn't really love. For example, Jesus didn't minimize the sins of the tax collectors, Matthew or Zacchaeus. But yet in both cases, they were drawn to him because he was kind, he was inviting, he was loving towards them without dismissing their sin. And what was the result? They both became followers of Jesus. They turned from practicing sin and they began to practice righteousness and love those they previously took advantage of. They paid back what they had stolen with interest. Another example I think of is Jesus didn't diminish the sins of the adulterous woman in John 8, but rather after he, he scattered them by pointing out their sins, he turned to the woman and he said what? Neither do I condemn you. He loved her. He was compassionate towards her. And then he said, go and sin no more. Practice righteousness. The Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus lovingly interacting with people and the result is they begin to follow him, turning from their life of sin and beginning to practice righteousness and loving other people as Christ loved them. And today, if by God's grace, he has called you to be his child, you will invariably feel the pull to increasingly turn from sin and to increasingly give your life to making disciples by compassionately loving everyone you encounter. This is the Christian life. And one of the verses I think that serve as a, as a pillar in my life, one of my life verses is Micah 6, 8. And I think it perfectly summarizes our text today. You probably know it. Live justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Live justly means practice righteousness. Pursue righteousness rather than lawlessness. Love mercy means have compassion on people. 
And when you live justly and love mercy, you will walk humbly with your God. I pray today that you are filled with hope of seeing this growing fruit of righteousness and love in your own life. Just know that this fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your own striving. And finally, take hope that he who started this work in you will be faithful to complete it. May God be praised. Pray with me. Father, oh, what love you have lavished on us that we would be called your children. At great cost, you freed us from the captor of our souls and you didn't just rescue us and adopt us. You infused us with your very nature so that both holiness and love would increasingly characterize our lives. Indeed, love this amazing, this divine, absolutely demands our soul, our life, our all. So Father, do your work in our lives today. Amen.